You are listening to the Religica Theo Lab podcast in the Center for Ecumenical and Interreligious Engagement at Seattle University. This is Michael Reed Trice at Religica. Today, our associate, Saeed Osman, is speaking with Carolyn King, who is the former elected chief of the Mississauga of the New Credit First Nation. Elder King is engaged with governments, colleges and universities and businesses and community organizations to lead cross-cultural training sessions and presentations that help people develop a better understanding of the Aboriginal First Nations people in Canada. We invite you to take a listen. Thank you for joining us today. Tell me about yourself. Okay. Well, in Canada here, we're First Nations, or the Indigenous people of this land, and that we're one of the um, 600-plus First Nations in Canada. We're the Mississaugas of the Credit First Nation. Uh, We live here in uh, southern Ontario, mainly, and all around the Great Lakes. So our First Nation, in the early days of building Canada, we were part of what they call treaty lands, making treaties between the... uh, British government and our ancestors. And so one of the key ones is that we're here at this event in Toronto. Well, we signed a treaty in 1805. It's called the Toronto Purchase. And that we signed an agreement to give up this land for the settlement of the people coming in. And so we keep coming back. We don't live here now. We live about 60 miles away on an Indian reserve here in Canada. We have an interest in this land. People lived here. Our villages are here. Our bones are in the ground. Our um, medicine sites are here. And those special places are are still of interest to us. So we come back here often to uh, relate to them. You talked about the special interest sites being still within the greater Toronto area yes. as well as about the treaty. I'd like to ask some more about what the process was for the First Nation community to sign a treaty with the British government. Like what what was the history behind it? How exactly it took place? Was there a lot of controversy or you know yeah. I would say the British government of the day had a process. And our First Nation, our ancestors, signed 23 treaties with the governments of the day before Canada was Canada. So that's uh, 1763 when they did the proclamation for Canada to become a country. So it was the whole idea of settling the land. Then they talked to the First Nations people and they um, said, uh, give them meetings with them and saying that they wanted to take the land. They needed land for the new settlers. So they, uh, there's actually a concept called presence, where they offered them presents if they, to give up the land. And so they did pay money, in most cases not enough, and promised them care, in which case uh, blankets, you know, things if they, if they left the land where they were living on and went and moved someplace else, they would be looked after. And that's what the treaty process is in this country. And they would be looked after. And so these 23 treaties have happened? In in around the southern Ontario. Okay. And this was all prior to the 1763 proclamation? Ours were. And most of them were. that Because uh, it was called Upper Canada at the time under the British rule. And that, so we uh, signed with the British government of the day. But and they also signed the rest of Canada too later. Okay. Yeah. There are 660 First Nation communities in, in Canada. Canada. Yes. And they would have a council and of a chief and counselors, and that uh, they they would be recognized as a First Nation and a legal entity. And so, 
so each one of the 606, like I'm interested in learning more about how the, this process works, you know, for, for our listeners, I think for many people who have simply not encountered and learned too much about the community, the First Nations community. And, you know, I'm interested in learning more both on how things have progressed through time, as well as kind of the direction First Nation communities are moving into the future. And, you know, I think a lot of our audience are Americans, you know, I'd be interested in potentially contrasting from what you understand between, you know, indigenous communities in the United States versus Canada. Well, we're all indigenous people. Yeah. That's one thing. And that, uh, so people of the land and that being that we're in two different countries, that the United States has different legislation that allows the tribe, in the United States we're called tribes, okay, it allows the tribes to take more control of their future, in which case they have, uh, back in the 60s, things started to change, and that they have the um, Self-Determination Act, and they have side-related act called the um, Reorganization Act, and that allows them to have their own government and run it the way they see fit to run their particular. In Canada, we don't have that. We have initiatives that are being promoted by the federal government to do what they call self-government, in which case we would kind of do the same thing. You start to take control of your life or your nation's life. And so in our political bodies, they're working on those kinds of things. What would, a, uh, and we call it a self-government initiative. What would it look like if we take over the education? And it's not the mainstream education. What would our version look like? Who's going to fund it and all those kinds of things? There was just a move here in Ontario where the government give the, I think it's Treaty 9, authority to run their own education system. So things are happening and changing. Like in most of our First Nations here in Ontario, they would, we get funding from Indian Affairs or the federal government and also from the provincial government to deliver programs in the community. And therefore, we have to follow those rules mostly. And so now it's starting to change that we will be able to run programs that's more suitable for our and what, what do these programs look like, the ones that are potentially more suitable? Is it primarily learning more about culture and language? Yes, that language can be part of it. Cultural uh, can be part of it. Why not our own art as opposed to some other settlement communities' art, even in the way that our schools are built? You know, if we choose to be in a circle, and we can teach in a circle and not sit in straight lines behind a box type thing. That's what I was raised with. Yeah. You know, all just lines of desk and sitting at a little square desk uh, type thing. And you know, we marched into school and, you know, we had to do <laughs> all those kinds of things is the way the federal system uh, did. And that was those early days. I was not in a what they call residential schools. I, I did day school. We left our home and went to the school uh, in the community, just like other places. Okay. And so it wasn't separated from the family and moved into a, uh, like a boarding school, which was just close. So my mother was in that. She was in the, the Mohawk Institute in Brantford, which is about 15 miles away. And a lot of people were in our communities were in those schools. So can you elaborate a little bit more about those type of schools? So you're, you're talking about yeah. residential schools. And- residential schools are, they're referred to now. So when the, go, to go back, 
idea in the settlement of the land from the British government that they would take up the land and they would look after us. That included education, health, and well-being. And based on our way of life, that kind of didn't fit that British concept, in which case they wanted us to go to school, learn how to farm, look after ourselves, and how to learn how to pray and believe like them. That's what I was putting. I was I went through the Anglican system here in Canada. So, you know, I went to, went to church on Sunday. And the traditional people, they don't go to church on Sunday. It's more of a seasonal, living with the land and the seasons here. So a lot of people rejected going to church and even rejected going to school in some cases because they didn't want their children taken away. But those who did, uh, the residential schools were set up in order to educate and prepare the children for the new future, reading and writing English and learning how to farm and look after yourself. That's kind of what happened with our people. I did want to circle back a little bit on your experience becoming the first female chief of the Anishinaabe. How was the experience? Like, how, what happened um, prior for you to become the chief? And how has your experience been since? Like, now you're a former chief. And I, I mean, I know, you know, in some cases of you know, former mayors or former presidents, and they sometimes have still quite a lot of influence, you know. And, and I'm curious if that's sort of very oh, similar. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I worked for the First Nation. Yeah. I was the community economic development person. And so I did a lot of community development. That's what I say my strength is, is I, I like working in the grassroots work. So when we have a need to make things happen, build things, develop programs. So I thrive on that kind of work, making things happen, change, making a change for the better. And I also means stopping some things. Yeah. yeah. So as the community development worker, I was a very busy person, and still am, doing everything. Uh, When I say community development, that's doing everything. And that's like building buildings, getting people jobs, promoting programs that's going to serve the community, representing the community out there to say that this is what we want, this is what we need, planning for the community. Our little community is a planning community. So I've got a lot of background in planning processes. So using the mainstream planning process and then ideally the way that we would plan, uh, linking more to keeping the resources alive, you know, that we're not going to tear up and rip up everything. You know, Mother Earth, Mother Nature does that in its own right. Yeah. So I decided to run because I did a lot of that stuff. I did all of that building of work, and like, things didn't seem to be going the way they should. And that uh, I was fortunate after we did our comprehensive community planning process, which is no different than a mainstream official plan. But we set up a plan for what we needed and where we want it to be in the future, a 20-year plan. And so I worked so I could keep that plan going. And then I uh, left. I chose to leave. Tying this back to the spiritual side of things, a a lot of what tends to motivate outside of, say, fame and fortune is what we want to do for God or for our Creator. And I'm curious if that's among the motivations of simply, you know, beyond giving back to our, part of giving back into our community is being, simply being thankful for how, how the creator has uh, given us blessings in this world. Yes, I agree. I agree with that. That um, we just did some things. We're building a new arbor in our community, which is like a pavilion. Yeah. You know, type thing. It's not like it's something... You might go look at it and say, that's just a 
gazebo. Yeah. It's a pavilion. So we're working away on things. And that I had the paper, but I think it's left on, a, on my table back there. And that we were trying to get a banner done that was um, put together for the event. And our student wrote a very nice, what I almost say encapsulates yeah. what we're trying to do as a people. Yeah. Just as you're pulling it up, I was curious if you just have any final thoughts that, you know, for our listener. One of the things that I advocate is that, you know, our people had a way of life and a belief system and that it should be respected as well. And that uh, it may not be the same as the mainstream, but it has sustained our people for thousands and thousands of years. I think that should be recognized. And that many of our people are, all, for lack of a better word, lost and looking for something and looking for some place to belong. And in the belief system that everybody can belong. We have a creator. There's a power above us that helps us in our world. You are listening to the Religica Theo Lab podcast in the Center for Ecumenical and Interreligious Engagement at Seattle University. 